and welcome to this episode of the Health Advocate podcast. My name is Rebecca Haddock and I'm the Director of the Deagle Institute for Health Policy Research at the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association. Today I'm speaking with South Australian GP, Dr Chris Bollen. Chris is also a Director at BMP Health Consulting and my co-author on AHA's recently published health policy brief, Providing Telehealth in General Practice During COVID-19 and Beyond. Chris, hello and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. Chris, to get the ball rolling, can you tell us a little bit about what the experience of telehealth has been like for you as a GP and for your practice colleagues? Yeah, look, I've really uh, felt it's been a, it's a fantastic gift we've uh, been given in general practice, uh, having uh, Medicare rebatable telehealth care consultations. It's been uh, actually fun in some ways, learning new skills because you've had to challenge yourself to look at and listen to people in a different way in the phone and the video settings compared to that face-to-face. So some people I know, my colleagues, have found that really scary because it's been a really new environment for them to actually put themselves in. I've been concerned about making mistakes, not picking things up. But overall, um, most of us have felt that it's been a really important thing because it's actually kept our practices safe and operational during some difficult times when we've been lacking PPE, we haven't been able to screen everyone successfully and uh, people have just come in off the street. So to be able to utilise something like such as telehealth to triage, screen and clinically assess people has been a very, very important step forward. Uh, And it's also given us opportunity to think about how telehealth can be used to people with long-term conditions, older people that can't come in or uh, struggle to come in on a regular basis to see us. So it's given us all sorts of interesting new challenges during a very challenging time in our history. So I guess, you know, do you want some examples at this stage of, of what we've been doing or how would you like to sort of hear about our experiences? I think our listeners would love to hear some examples, Chris. Like one, of, one of my favourite ones is that uh, I had a lady that was living in a house that she was had great kids supporting her, but she's on the other side of Adelaide. And so she hated getting in the car, coming to see me in the surgery. She had dementia. She had a lot of agitation every time she knew she was changing her environment. And so one time was after March 20, when the phone and uh, video consultation started, I said to her family, I said, why don't we... Uh, try the next session to actually do it at home now i said to the son had home blood pressure monitoring because he had hypertension i said why don't you take the home blood pressure monitor to her home and we'll do a lying and sitting blood pressure so we'll do this on a video with facetime connection so i wanted to see her wandering around her own home i wanted to see her interact with her environment because as a gp often we don't get a chance to see people's homes so it was a really interesting consultation via video, getting the son to actually do the lying and sitting blood pressure, finding she had a postural drop, watching her walk up and down her hallway and seeing how difficult it was to get out of the chair and to see how unsafe she was. So I found that was really interesting because when she comes into my room, she's usually well held up with her kids and very, very agitated. She was calm. And I was able to be introduced to her great Labrador dog as well that she always talked about. So it was a really interesting experience. Great because clinically I could get a lot of information that maybe sometimes I couldn't get in the room. 
she was way more relaxed. And I think that's what I've found with a lot of people with dementia. It's one of my areas of special interest in general practice is working with older people, keeping them well at home. And it's been incredibly good to help with that, uh, to actually help reach out to people to interact with them proactively in their homes compared to our normal reactive cells, which we only see people when they ring up. I think that this has allowed us to change our paradigm to really focus on proactive care compared to our usual reactive models. So I've, you know, that's some of my experiences that I've found uh, very helpful. I think the other part is that uh, what we need to do is, from a general practice perspective, we need to run a lot more training programs for GPs and our nurses to become a lot more comfortable with using video technology. That It's a, it's a really clear need that this uh, last four or five months has shown us, that uh, the discomfort of using the technology and the discomfort with actually assessment on the phone and the video. And we've got to practice that more often. I, I must We've got to register on our practice and I've been running some little quick uh, lunchtime sessions with the registrar to talk through about how you actually do assess people. And I, I used to run simulation training in a public hospital for junior doctors. And I used that simulation training approach to help them think through what you need to be doing to assess a person effectively in a phone or video consultation. And it, it just, it makes you think about what we take for granted about nonverbal behavior when you know, I see a person, I call them in from the waiting room, watch them stand up, watch them walk, limp, stagger, slouch shoulders, not, you know, their unhappy face, their respiratory effort taken just to actually walk from the waiting room to my room. So much in that first 60 seconds, I've been able to glean as a clinical interaction that I, you don't get on the phone or the video. And uh, they're really important skills to think through when it comes to assessment safely in this new paradigm. So I think that's something that uh, we could run a lot more webinars on to sort of help people become more comfortable with that assessment. And our peers need to share that uh, a lot more. As you were talking, Chris, I was actually reflecting that as we sort of adopt telehealth, part of your role as a GP has also changed in that you're having to teach patients and your colleagues how to actually use the technology yeah and, and that's right and the, and the thing is is that and you know as, as you've already guessed I'm, I'm passionate about this and I, I think one of the things about uh, this whole coaching approach to life that uh, you know I coach GPs how to help them uh, deliver different outcomes to their practice. I coach patients for their uh, you know better health outcomes um, so utilizing coaching um, is a skill that all GPs have used in the past that's part of what we do on a daily basis it's just sometimes we don't necessarily think about it as a everyday tool in this setting and uh, you know patient education is something all of our consults contain this is just another element of it so Chris you've given us an example of how one of your patients is engaged with telehealth through video conferencing but how are you finding patients engage with this model of care more generally? And what have you seen as the major challenges for them? Well, I think that the number one challenge for most of them is that, uh, you know, they normally love coming in and then to say, all right, well, I've got to be on the phone. That's many older people, hard of hearing. They've struggled to actually use the phone as well as they could. 
So that's one of the specific issue with some of my particular demographic, which, you know, you know, the older people are a fast rising group, especially the 85 plus group. Use of technology. Many older people either don't have a mobile phone or if they have a mobile phone, it's an older phone that's not smart. And so I've had to sort of really work out what do they have, understanding that because that's a key requirement. They don't have iPads, or if they have an iPad, they've never actually known how to use the camera. So I remember one lady I did actually have to teach, and that was part of the consultation, uh, you know, interact with her, but teach her for the first time to use her iPad that her granddaughter had given her the week before after I had actually said, I think you need to learn about technology. This is the way healthcare will be for the future. And she said, no, 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 no. I said, honestly, this is how it will be. And if you're going to actually get the most out of it as a consumer, you need to actually join in. So she must have had a chat with her granddaughter. Granddaughter bought her the latest iPad. So when we actually used the iPhone to the iPad, it was so clear. But I always remember what happened when we came online the first time. You know, it was like, oh, my heavens, seeing her doctor in a video consultation was just something she just was amazed at and it was really good and i've actually had a number with her it's been very helpful to help her focused on what she needs to be doing to keep well and i've actually even been able to get her to demonstrate her sit to stand exercises to show me how she's improving in her exercise program to actually help her remain more robust at home so that's been a really really good uh, opportunity but again that's the minority the majority of people are struggling with video they have poor internet connections don't know how to use the technology much happier on the phone and that i guess when we look at the mbs data where i think it's about nine or ten percent of all of the mbs uh, consultations in telehealth have been for video and 90% roughly are phone. I can understand why. You know, I've encouraged as many of my patients to actually use video, but it's been a lack of, as I said, you know, access to internet, access to computers. The other interesting thing too is that iPhone and uh, Android don't connect from a video perspective. I've, I've been using a lot of FaceTime because I personally have an iPhone. I found it's the simplest way to actually access people. And one of my 76-year-old patients taught me about Google Duo, which is an app that allows an iPhone and an Android to connect and have a FaceTime experience. I didn't even and, know about that, Chris. <laughs> yeah, no, but, and, you know, it, it, it's, that's what you learn from your patients. And I think I looked it up and it was completely secure. It's encrypted. So it's actually compliant for use in these settings. And so I've had a look and other healthcare organisations around the world have been using it as well. So then I was able to then teach other people about Google Duo. So, you know, we keep on learning. I think that's the great thing about challenging times. We've got to think about the status quo has been disrupted. We need to think about ways that we can actually move things forward. And I guess telehealth, we've been working on it for many years saying, hey, this, this could be a way forward and what's the funding model? It's happened and we need to grasp it and show the outcomes that are possible with it. And I think that's one of the key things that patients are loving the experience of being able to utilise it. And I've got another little case study of one that was really good. I've got a gentleman that's a self-employed painter and he has diabetes, type 2, 
So getting time off work to actually come to the doctor to interact on various issues relating his diabetes, hypertension, his leg rashes, all of these things that, you know, he knew that he has these things happening. So we actually set up some in the front of his cab video consults. So he was at work and could then go to the cab in a private space because it's a really important thing I tell my patients, we've got to be in a private area. And so he then was able to show me his rash, talk to me about his blood sugar control and talk to me about his uh, mental health issues that he was having. And he said, what do I owe you for this? I said, no, look, you know, because uh, you have diabetes, it's a bulk bill consultation. There's a COVID Medicare rebate to, to cover that. He said, really? What's the bonus for having diabetes? So he said, I'd be happy to pay for this because it was such an important thing for him to be able to not have to take time off work to come physically to the GP, sit in a waiting room and miss time off work. And I've had a lot of people that have actually said the same thing. Why have we been doing this earlier? And a lot of my working patients that have chronic conditions have felt the same way. And you know, people working from home with depression, anxiety, have said this has been fantastic for them. I've got a number of young men that are working from home, feeling very anxious, have been also symptoms of depression. And I've just started having a weekly video uh, consult with them just to check in. How are you doing? What's happened? How's the medication? How's your sleep? What's been changing? And then reminding them about some of the non-medicine type approaches to helping with mental health, such as, now, what about your walking? What's been happening there? What about your alcohol intake? What's been happening there? Tell me about how much the fruit and veg intake. Let's look at your social interaction. So let's, and it's an opportunity just to check in how they're going, which we wouldn't have done usually because they would have had to physically take time off work, come in, and they might have only come to see me each month. And things can drift in a four-week period. Young men are not always the most uh, activated when it comes to changing behaviour. And so sometimes that more frequent coaching approach has allowed some different things to happen. And, you know, I think that's one of the other exciting things that I'm seeing this interaction. We might have smaller interactions, but more often. And they've been very beneficial from a, a patient outcome perspective because we've kept focused. And again, a lot of people might also not make that next appointment. I've been proactive in saying, right, Rebecca, I'm going to book you in next Wednesday, okay, 12 o'clock, we'll do another video consult. And I've booked you in, said, right, that's what's happening. There's some accountability and commitment that sometimes the face-to-face -face doesn't always happen. And by the way, if you don't turn up, I can call and video you. And I've found that with a number of people with mental health issues who sometimes actually don't turn up. And I've then rung them and said, look, can we have a consult at this point in time? Because we did have one today. Like, oh, doc, oh, thank God you rang. I'm feeling so down. I just didn't have the motivation to come and see you. And we've actually talked some things through, worked on a little plan. I did actually have one lady who was suicidal. And we talked through and she actually uh, said, look, can we convert this to a video consult? Um, so we had a video consult and we talked through the issues that were creating her suicidal thoughts. And we put together a plan to help keep her safe for the next 24 hours. We checked in uh, together the next day and she said, oh, I'm feeling so much better as a result of our conversation and that little plan we put in place. And so we were able to have those more frequent interactions. So again, it was just a, you know, would that have happened if we had face-to-face? -face? She may not even come to see me, 
she maybe didn't feel as comfortable reaching out. I don't know what would have happened, but it was just an interesting, these are things that uh, we're breaking new ground, Rebecca, some of the way we're interacting with people. So you're really sort of describing to me that telehealth allows you to sort of more holistically treat your patients in some ways. But what do you see is needing to occur to ensure that care will continue to wrap around the patient according to their needs? So for example, for someone with chronic disease or multimorbidities, who might need to see a team of health professionals? Well, I had an example the other day where I had arranged for podiatrists to do a home visit on a person that had a chronic condition and mental health disorder. That person also had a a local mental health care coordinator visiting on a fortnightly basis. So with the podiatrist, I rang the podiatrist said, look, you know, would you mind checking in? And when you're there, could you arrange to have a phone consultation with me? Because the person uh, didn't have a mobile phone, uh, the, the actual patient, but the uh, podiatrist did. I said, how about we then have a three-way conversation? You can tell me what you think's happening and what we need to be doing differently or better as a, for her foot care so that we can then engage her and yourself together. So that was great, but my thing was that he didn't get paid for his phone consultation. So that's one of the things I've noticed for the number of allied health is that uh, while there are some telehealth consultation items available, not everyone can access them in the same way. And when it comes to that case conferencing type approach, uh, I think we really need to be clear that, you know, if we're going to get other health professionals to commit, well, they also need to be able to have long-term access to item numbers for telehealth. The care coordinator for the mental health area, she was employed by the state health, mental health, so she wasn't fussed. That was just part of her remit. And she said, this is the best thing ever, that you as a GP are prepared to actually book a consultation with me as I visit the person with a mental health disorder. She said, that doesn't normally happen. I said, yeah, it's great, isn't it? Because that way we're sharing stuff that otherwise might come in a letter in 10 days' time. And we could actually act on things right here and now. So again, that from state-funded perspective, when you've got that person, that's clearly not going to change. It's the GP attitude needs to actually make sure that we change to say, this is actually a priority for this person. Now we've got the funding, we can book that. In the past, I know a lot of my GP colleagues said, look, I don't even take calls because I'm already booked out, I've got, I'm busy. Hang on, if you get paid to do this, you're more likely to say, I've got you on my schedule we're committing to that phone call. So I think they're important things that this needs to stay because it's more likely to have good stuff happen. But our, our other health professionals, we need to ensure that they remain engaged and they know that they can actually get paid if they're going to be involved with case conferencing, care coordination. And I think they're the really key parts. The fact that nurses in our practices now generate an item number for a, a chronic disease interaction I've written a small publication about called Reaching Out, a reaching out program that practice nurses utilising the five visit EPC items can now actually proactively call people rather than just say, I'm going to send you a recall letter to come in for a care plan and see how we can keep you well for the next 12 months. They can ring people and it then becomes a consultation with the nurse about Rebecca, now how are you going? What, how your blood sugar's been going? Dr. Chris has been a bit worried about how you're going during COVID. You know, he's aware that you've got a chronic condition, you might be thinking and hearing that you might be at greater risk of infection and the complications. 
just want to tell you that Dr. Chris has been really concerned about you. So that's why we'd like to reach out to you and offer you some phone support, see how you're going. You know, we're doing, and this is what we did, we've got flu vaccine clinic happening this way, or we've got access to the new uh, pneumococcal vaccinations happening because now you're over 70, there is a new program for you. So the nurses are actually doing a great job at educating people proactively rather than getting this very vanilla letter Hi, Rebecca. Your appointment for a care plan review with Dr. Chris is now due. Please ring and make a time. What we know is that that is the least appealing way of actually getting people to return for their so-called proactive care. So we can actually utilise our nurses who already work with this cohort of people in our practices. They can get the recall lists and they can go through them and go, right, why don't we actually ring them? Because all those people that already have existing care plans, that automatically becomes a phone consultation relating to their chronic care. And we can actually get their weight at home. Many of them have blood sugar monitors they're using. They have home blood pressure meters. So there's a whole raft of data that the nurses can pick up now that to actually think about what, how are people really coping? What else can we be doing to actually support this person. And so that's then triggered a few changes as far as, oh, okay, Rebecca, the nurses will often come back to me and say, oh, look, you know, I've had a chat to Rebecca. She's struggling with pain. She's not walking. This is happening. So they then said, could you actually organise a phone consultation? So I've organised that or a video consultation. And then said, all right, look, what's happening? What's changed in your life? And we've worked on little plans. And then I've got the nurse to then make another time in a couple of weeks to work back with them on, on their new goals because during COVID we noticed a lot of people with chronic conditions their self-care has gone out the window you know whether you've got a chronic condition or not we all know that the COVID coat quarantine drinking and eating has increased and so that's all impacted everyone every one of us has changed our behavior to our self-care so coaching and proactivity is a real opportunity as a result of these items but going back to the wraparound care, so clearly the most complex, at the top of the pyramid of our needs within our communities, the palliative care patients, the older people who are at risk or have frailty that need teams, they're the ideal ones to actually work with in this sort of manner. It's just making sure that the other health professionals are also interacting in the same way. And, you know, I think that public hospital outpatients, they've been using a lot of telehealth but they haven't necessarily been connecting back to us as GPs. They've been writing a letter again. So I think one of the things that we could be doing better to running some case conferences using Zoom and other video ideas. When you actually look at the MBS descriptor for case conferences and Medicare, it doesn't actually mention video or phone. But the reality is, is that that's how it has to happen. So the fact that it doesn't actually mention face-to-face -face either in that descriptor, says there is some flexibility. We just need to go, well, you know what? In this chaos, we need to break a few rules, you know, in the interests of patient care, because that's what it's all about. How do we actually support best outcomes for our patients? Communication between health professionals, communication with our patients, being able to be accessible to our patients. And they're all the things that this telehealth care allows far more than ever before. So we need to just be, you know, help keep promoting what are the good things. Now, clearly there are all the negatives too that many people would have heard about, oh, look, you know, 
it's it's changed my billing practice. I'm not privately billing as much, so that means my practice is less sustainable. But if you start thinking about the model of care in your practice, you start looking at your demographic data, look at the people within your practice who are missing out on care. And there's so many studies in the last two months about the groups of patients that are not coming to the doctor. So that's our opportunity to say, well, if our business model is simply a reactive business model, we only see those who book in to see us, then we are running a reactive care model. But if actually what we aim to do as GPs who are serving the needs of our community, if we're actually interested in proactive care, then we can use our, our demographic data that is often, you know, it's in our suite of extraction tool data, looking at patients with diabetes, chronic kidney disease, heart disease, COPD, all of the other chronic conditions. We can be far more proactive for them to help improve their experience of care, help improve their outcomes, the financial sustainability of our practices is looked after. And by the way, actually, many of us who use telehealth are saying this actually is reducing stress in our everyday work lives. So those four things, Rebecca, are the quadruple aim. It's the holy grail of healthcare outcomes. And I, I see telehealth as actually bringing that. But you need to sit down and make some quarantine time as a practice leader to say, hey, how are we going to reorientate our practice to deliver the model of care that needs to be delivered during this time? And that's something a lot of GPs and their managers don't necessarily do. It's that sitting down and quarantining planning time. How do we use this for the good? How do we think about the financial sustainability of our practice through the model of care that we need to be clearly defining for our GPs and our patients? So that's, I think, one of the really important things for those people that are concerned about their financial sustainability. We think about, you know, who's in your practice database. You can utilise that to really think differently about how you're going to deliver your care. And then you've got the telehealth care item numbers to back it up. But that requires leadership. So in that vein, Chris, how do you think governments can support the effective adoption of telehealth into general practice? So do you think funding and governance need to be addressed to make this model more feasible and sustainable? Well, I think the, the funding model, we clearly, obviously, the first step was we've got a Medicare rebate. Now, for many years, clearly, people have been unhappy with the Medicare rebate as a, a piece of, uh, or as, as an item number worth a certain number of dollars when it comes to how do you actually use that to pay for your building expenses staff. So clearly, we've got to be clear on what's the right dollar value of an item number for a face-to-face, -face, a phone consultation, planning care, all those sort of things. Now, clearly, it is what it is right now. But what we've got to be clearer on is that if we move into models of enrolling patients, so the planned 70-year-old enrolment program, where the government was suggesting we would have phone consultations as part of that. That was a particular model which may work. But I think the area where it works comes back to governance. If you enrol a patient, then that person is actually, there's an accountability from practice and doctor perspective, but also the patient perspective. So there's a level of governance there we don't currently have where accountability, all of a sudden I'm enrolling you and this means X, Y, Z. So access, we'll look after your wellness. What does that mean? So it gives people opportunities to really start talking about what it could look like. 
we're currently, it's really with our no enrolment, it's just based on loyalty. So there's not much governance when it comes to looking at the data of our patients that come and visit us because we don't know who else they visit. We don't know who else they're getting their scripts from. We don't know who else they might be doing a cervical screening elsewhere, but it's on our database. It's like you haven't had a cervical screening. So governance of data and outcomes has got to be linked. And that's what currently doesn't happen in general practice. So the big picture of how can we as a practice be more accountable for the care of the community has got to be linked in with telehealth. The other part of governance is that if this is a Medicare item number, we need to remember as taxpayers that if it's taxpayer money, any Medicare item number needs to be safe and effective for the care that's delivered for that paid episode. Now, that's, that's a really important uh, piece of thinking because currently we've got a lot of non-accountable care that happens. Care, yeah, it does happen, but the accountability is not necessarily. So moving forward, we need to ensure that any of the item numbers are actually linked with accountability and there's a safety and quality component. Now, the item number changed on July 20th when the Health Minister Greg Hunt made the announcement that telehealth item numbers would be constrained for access only to people that had actually seen their GP within the last 12 months, face-to-face. So that then starts limiting the number of people that can access the telehealth item numbers. And I know there's a lot of controversy about that around the country. And I think the idea is good, but its implementation has happened far too quickly because practices are struggling to go, well, hang on, there's a lot of people in our databases that actually see us every two years. You know, we look at the young, fitter group of people that are working. They may not see their GP every 12 months, but they might come on every two years for a skin check or a general checkup. All of a sudden, that group cannot access telehealth. They need to come in physically. Now, in Victoria, because the hotspot areas, they've actually got an exemption that they can still use the COVID-based item numbers and they don't have to have seen their GP in the last 12 months. So there's a number of exemptions. I think those exemptions also need to be recognised for our rural, regional areas where there is a struggle to actually get access to GPs. So that's something during my coaching of practices all around Australia, a lot of regional rural practices don't have regular GPs. They might be owned by a nurse and a manager and they've got locum doctors coming in every uh, six weeks. That group are often not seeing their patients that regularly. But that's the group that telehealth will definitely benefit because they can actually not have to take time off from their farm drive 300 kilometres to physically sit in front of the doctor who they've probably never met before because they're a locum, but they have a relationship with the practice nurse and the practice manager. So we need to think creatively to go, what are good outcomes look like for our rural regional areas and build on that? So the fact that it's suddenly changed, I think that was a poor decision. The, the change itself is a good decision, but we needed far more time to plan the outcomes here. Chris, thank you for your time today.